Currently one of the most celebrated figures in American history is Martin Luther King Jr. But should he be? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. We have three American holidays that are named after individuals or to celebrate individuals. There's Columbus Day, which, you know, other than governments and banks, basically nobody gets off. There's Washington's birthday that most people don't even call it Washington's birthday. They call it President's Day, even though it's officially Washington's birthday. And like a quarter of the people that aren't in government get that off. And then you have Martin Luther King Day, which is his birthday, and almost half the people in America that aren't that don't get government holidays that they get that day off and it's named after him i mean so clearly in our holiday schedule he is the most important figure in american history so how should christians think about him yeah i mean he's he's a a figure that is really looked to at this point by you know both political parties i mean the democrats you know love him you know because a lot of his stuff was progressive at that time and even today you know some of it would still be progressive you know republicans like that they could say that it should you know quote him talking about how you know everyone should be treated equally um and then say well therefore not you know affirmative action type thing but let's just do equal you know and plus you know they can latch on and saying you know this figure then the past was controversial now we're on board with them too um, so, you know, he's just a pretty popular person to refer to. And, you know, there's probably a lot of people who don't even know that, you know, he is actually, there's a, you know, a lot of scandals associated with him that people should be aware of and should be considering before jumping on the, you know, the praise bandwagon. What we're kind of talking about here in a sense is how do you divorce an individual from some of the things the individual has said? I mean, there's, because there's a part of it where we're going to talk about it as we go through, there are lots of things that he said that everybody in here would go, that is a good statement. I support that statement. I think that is a good thing. And at the same time, like you said, but he is held up as he, not just the things he said, not just the things he believed in, as we have idealized them in an individual. And there's a part of it where, do you know is is that idealization of a person is that a good thing is that you know are there things associated with that that are really that are very very harmful and i think before we get into it i think it's worth saying this shouldn't need to be said and saying it might not help but it's worth saying is that you know our point here is to judge things fairly i mean we're going to be saying some negative things about a hero of the civil rights movement you know one of the most famous black americans ever and, and the point isn't because he is that um you know we've in other podcasts we've talked about other plenty of other you know uh heroes from history um that there's negative things about them that it's important to consider and so the the point is you know to look at it in a in a fair way that's fair to everyone i mean and and the reason that we actually have some responsibility to do this is in a sense he's achieved American sainthood and to the point that he has the most observed holiday for any individual in American history and so we should think about okay if we are going to be celebrating this person with this kind of these kinds of observances what exactly are we celebrating and why you know it, it is really important to understand that when you make markers as memorials of things in the past, what are they memorials of? 
Yeah, and you know, we're living in an age where people are, you know, tearing down the reputation of historical figures and even literally tearing down the monuments. Uh, and so when we're thinking about these things that are going on in our society, we need to have some standards that are consistent, you know, versus people's public actions, people's private actions, you know, the entire breadth of their statements versus their contributions on one issue and be able to judge people fairly because I think a good argument can be made that that's not being done. Today. And, and, you know, this is something that I say to homeschooling parents is that a lot of times you pick up these Christian books that are Christian biographies, and they're horrible because they don't represent the person. What they do is they, they basically try to make him a saint. And so they write them in such a way that it's all these good things that he did, and they'll talk about him as being an individual. That's just not how the scriptures deal with people. I mean, nobody, you read the scriptures and Christ comes along and he's the figure that is perfect. But beyond that, you know, Peter lied and denied Christ three times. You look at, you know, Joseph performed sorcery with his, with his cup. I mean, you go and everybody has these flaws. Noah gets drunk, right? I mean, everybody has these flaws because that's how God is exalted. And when we aren't willing to look at people's faults, what we end up doing is exalting men and making men into saints. And in the case of Martin Luther King, I mean, I think, like you were saying, if you look at the body of what he wrote and the body of what he represented, much of what he said, he wasn't, he wasn't, he comes off a lot worse than Peter. He comes off a lot worse oh, yes. than, than that. You know what I mean? There's this, and, and there's this, I think there's one thing. But we we're not supposed to look at anybody with rose-colored glasses. Right. It's more my point. And, and, and I think that's part of it is, is one of the things that we won't necessarily talk about in this episode. But there is this, sometimes what people do is they have a tendency to go, everybody has faults. So you, so, and there's this equivalence of everyone's faults. And that's just not true either. You know, there are people who, there are people who fought for righteousness and they were sinners and there are people who were sinners and they were wicked men and there's you know so there's this part of it where people like to create they want to either create this they either want to ignore everyone's sin or they they want to turn around and go everyone's wicked everyone's evil everyone and that's neither of those positions are really true and it's important to recognize too how much influence that he continues to have in the black church community because his theology, black liberation theology, continues to be a large, you know, Warnock, Senator Warnock is the preacher in his church that he preached in, and he continues to preach black liberation theology. Jesus Christ came to free the black man. That is a false gospel, and that is widely preached in black churches, and it's a totally false gospel. And trust me, churches that are majority white, there's plenty of them that have totally false gospels too. But this one is, I mean, and people look back and they go, if you're saying Martin Luther King is a hero, you have to say, look at how many people he led to hell, because it is important. Part of the reason why you have to approach this so carefully is because of the nature of the idolization of him. There's this part of it where there are people who, if you go to say something negative about him, they're just going to turn you off. They're going to say, I'm not going to entertain any thoughts about him not being a great man or anything he said as not being great, even though they've read almost nothing that he's actually said. They've only, they only know him by the little snippets and by the representation of it. And so there is this part of it where we just need to understand how strongly we've been influenced by these things. You know, I was reading today from the Gospel Coalition, nine things that you should know about Martin Luther King Jr. And it's very much, it's very idolatrous in how they treat him. 
And they kind of mention off to the side that he's, you know, his theology wasn't great. Not that it was blatantly contrary to the gospel. But, you know, a lot of things that they said would be more like what it says, you know, and this is one of the nine things you should know. While much of King's philosophy of nonviolence was derived from Christian, especially Anabaptist sources, a significant influence was the work of Indian leader Mohandas Mahatma Gandhi. While in seminary, King gave a presentation he prepared for a class entitled Christian Theology for Today, in which he included Gandhi as one of the, a number of figures he identified as individuals who greatly reveal the working of the Spirit of God. They don't even raise the issue of, I'm sorry, Gandhi wasn't a Christian. I mean, and, and they just kind of mix him in as this is the working of the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is actually a pretty dangerous view to start to make the Holy Spirit not about making people right with God, not about reconciling people to God, but to say by his works. I mean, this is very much a works-based righteousness view. And you start to have this that, that a lot of churches kind of exalt Martin Luther King Jr. And in the end, it, it becomes works righteousness. They, they do Gandhi, too, the same way, as if you can become right with God by your works. That's a really dangerous gospel. And so people need to make sure that they're looking at King and going, there's no reason to believe that King is saved. Not based on what he believed, not based on his actions. And we shouldn't exalt him because God used him. We shouldn't say he had to be a good man for God to use him. And, you know, the Gospel Coalition had a whole conference for the 50th anniversary of his death. And, you know, they touched on, you know, the things we're going to talk about in this episode. But it was very briefly and it was very dismissively saying, oh, you know, the greatest people can have mistakes. And the rest, you know, a whole bunch of sessions are just, you know, exalting him. And then, you know, they just say, well, you know, he had some he had some mistakes, not really like dealing with it in a clear way, saying that what he did wrong was serious. And you know, how are we supposed to reckon with this? But right. it's just kind of a, a whitewash job. You know, they have to acknowledge it, but just as little as possible. And we're going to spend the rest of the episode trying to wash off the whitewash. But the you said something prior to that that I think needs to be repeated because it's so basic and it's so hard to believe at the same time that God could use an unrighteous person for his own ends. And that's, I mean, there's a, there's a reason that you could think that's really difficult to come to grips with. It would be just tidier for me if God only used righteous people to accomplish his righteous ends and that if I saw somebody who was unrighteous, I would know that God wasn't using them. Right. But, but if we serve a, a sovereign God that all four of us at the table believe, then you have to go to passages in Scripture that say God uses all things for the good of his people, for the good of his people. That means all things. That means that the work of wicked men are for the benefit of the building of the kingdom of God. And that seems contradictory, but not if you believe that God actually controls all things. I mean, there's the book of Job where God brings Satan's attention to Job so that Satan will ask to go and persecute Job so that God might be glorified through Job. And Satan is a total pawn in this so that God might be glorified. Right. And Satan is, God is using Satan, and that doesn't make Satan righteous. And two things with that, that that's important. One is that if you think that God doesn't use righteous men— 
you don't understand who you are, or unrighteous men, you don't understand who you are. Because he uses sinners to accomplish his will. Otherwise, his will, Christ would have to be here in the flesh all the time because everything that he does, he does through men who fall short of the glory of God. Every man, thing that he does is he does through sinners. And I hope that that for for our listeners, I mean, I'm expecting we have a lot of homeschool families who listen to this, and especially homeschool moms who are trying to deal with the problem of teaching history to their kids. And this is a really hard thing. How do you teach those those bad parts of history when you want to talk about the work of God? I mean, how do you, how do you deal with things that are complex and complicated, and you can't put everybody, you can't put all of the white hats on the white side and the black hats on the black side, and you can't even really tell where they belong. And, and in the end, everybody wears black hats except for God. If you right. tell history that way, then that kind of solves the problem. But, and the best example that I think of this is Nebuchadnezzar, right? Because Nebuchadnezzar conquers 140 nations or something like that. I mean, he conquers the whole world as a wicked man to get them to bow down and pray to him. And through that is the first time that everybody hears the gospel since like the time of Noah was through that. So God uses wicked men. And what we're supposed to do is say, what is God doing here? And not just go, this is what men are doing. And you should do that if it's the righteous or the unrighteous. You go, what is God doing? Because the point of it is to understand God, not to understand man. And we kind of have already said this, but to say everyone wears black hats is true from one perspective in that everyone's a sinner, but it's not true in the sense that there are some people who, although they are sinners, they are people who are standing as preachers of righteousness in their generation, as godly leaders. And there are people who are not that, who are the opposite of that. And there's people that are, you know, it can be harder to tell because they're somewhere in between. But there are, there is... If you're, sure. you know, you can look at it from different perspectives. And there are perspectives where there are some people who are, you know, leaders of, in a good, very good way and people who are leaders in a wicked way. And God's using both of them. Martin Luther King Jr.'s, it's hard to say that he was serving God in any way if you look at what he's written and you look at his actions. But that doesn't mean that God didn't make him serve him. I mean, that's a bold statement that... That we'll flush out. Don't turn it off now because we have we have the words of the man himself to back it up but let's talk about something that he did that you know this is what he's known for at least by most whites right is what he said it is i have a dream speech that he gave in washington on august 28th of 63 i have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. That's a good biblical statement. That the Bible says there should be one law for all. For the Jew, for the Gentile, there is to be one law. Everybody's supposed to be treated the same way. They should all be judged by their behavior, by what they do, by who they are, not by the color of their skin. And he was saying it in a context where he was actually pointing out uh, an injustice in the country. You know, that we're not—none of us are denying that, that he actually didn't have his finger on the nose of a real problem. Right. Right. And, you know, and you can even find people with pretty good theology who needed to listen to him because, you know, he was pointing out something that they were on the wrong side of. But as we think of that and think about what he said, it's also— it's also important to remember that he very much was coming as, I'm a representative of God. I'm a pastor. 
I'm doing this as God's work. And, you know, one of his most famous writings is from the letter from Birmingham Jail. It starts with, my dear fellow clergymen. I mean, he's writing going, I'm able to speak to the churches because I'm a pastor. I'm coming from the gospel perspective. And when he does that, he's setting himself up because it's a serious thing. If you look at Ezekiel 34, if you look at other passages in the Old Testament, God says very clearly he judges pastors at a higher level. Woe to the shepherds of Israel, because you didn't bring glory and honor to me. You didn't care for my people, so therefore I will judge you more harshly. So while there's been plenty of historical figures where people go, well, he's not a pastor. He's not, he's not somebody who's professing that he's doing this as the work of God. That is not true for Martin Luther King Jr. He's going, I'm a pastor. I'm a clergyman. That's why I have the authority to speak. So he was leveraging the authority of God to speak. And I mean, so he's a professing Christian. He's a professing pastor. And the scripture says, hey, they do you do have to hold that kind of a person to a higher standard so when we're looking at him as a public figure it's okay to hold him to the standard that he says that he belongs under and he even goes further in the letter right he says but more basically i'm in birmingham because injustice is here just as the prophets of the 8th century bc left their villages and carried their thus saith the lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns and just as the apostle paul left his village of tarsus and carried the gospel of jesus christ to the far corners of the greco-roman world so am i compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown so he is comparing himself to a biblical prophet so this isn't that it's like a side thing, right? It's one thing when you look at, at, at men that are you know, caught up in sin and slaves of sin and don't really understand the gospel. You look at somebody like Abraham Lincoln, for instance, that, that you can look at what he did and not say you should judge him as a pastor. But Abraham Lincoln never said he was a prophet. Martin Luther King Jr. said, I am like an 8th century prophet. It is important to recognize that he's doing these things saying that he's been acting as a representative of Christ. And he's saying that the message he is bringing, that what he is bringing and what he is going to argue is central to the gospel. You know, I mean, that, that what he is doing and what his ministry is, is carrying the gospel. Right. And so, I mean, he, you know, I mean, and that's, and that's also very significant. Because it is the gospel that he's carrying, but that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is one of the reasons it's so significant. Right. You know, as he goes on, and this is only a paragraph later after the paragraph where we all know, right? Judge by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, 
knowing that we will be free one day. In the letter from the Birmingham jail, he used the phrase, the gospel of freedom. There's a lot of ways to interpret that. This fleshes that out. Very much This so. is saying, okay, Now, here, this preceded it, but yes. <laughs> well, but I, I mean, it's just as far as thinking about, well, what, what could, what is gospel? I mean, gospel of freedom, I mean, freedom from sin, freedom from the, the pangs of hell. All, okay, I, I'm, I can get all that out of my Bible. This bit, though, to say this is our hope, to say this is what I go back to the South with, that's, this is not talking about the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's using gospel words, but it's not saying, let's talk about the work of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about how Jesus Christ can produce reconciliation. Let's talk about how the blood of Jesus Christ can cause us to repent of our sins of racism and racial envy and all of the other things that are the roots of these kinds of problems. No, this is a different kind of gospel. And if you don't believe it, go pull up a random Martin Luther King Jr. sermon, read the sermon. And you'll see a lot of biblical language, but you're not going to see, you know, salvation from sin by Jesus Christ, death on the cross. You're not going to see hope for eternity. You're not going to see all the basic, you know, Christian doctrines. You're going to see similar statements, but applied to, you know, the end of racism and that these type of things, type of things he's talking about in this, in this, in this quote, because that is his gospel. That's his message. This is very different from Hebrews 11, right? I mean, where these pe- people were torn asunder by beasts because they hoped for a better country that was not on this earth. And that is, it is a very different gospel. And this gospel is we'll fix our nation. We'll have this beautiful symphony of brotherhood. And, and it's a really dangerous thing, and people do this all the time. President George W. Bush did this too where you take gospel language and you twist it so it becomes about the exaltation of man. That is a really dangerous thing to look for because this, it is, and, and George W. Bush would do it all the time, but he wouldn't do it saying he was a pastor that was preaching the gospel. He would just use it as, you know, what's now called a dog whistle to get people to, you know, your ears pick up because you hear, you know, every valley will be exalted and every mountain will be brought low and you hear that and that connects to scripture and so you listen and then you switch it and you talk about humanism, which is what George W. Bush did all the time. But that's the same thing Martin Luther King's doing here, only he then goes on to explicitly say the gospel is about man being free, not free from sin, free from judgment of society based on the skull or the skin free from slavery because his view of slavery would be that it's not just that you know you're owned by somebody else it's that you're you know it's the critical race theory kind of idea is that you're in subjection even though you're not technically you're technically free but you're not really free and there were real because ways the that they were not talking to because the people he was talking to were technically legally free right. even though i mean even if even were, though they could only go to one school and not the other school even though they couldn't sit at the at the lunch counter for the whites they could only sit at, but they weren't constrained in the way that they were owned by somebody and this is a common thing for people to do uh where they make the gospel all about this world i mean it's it's basically the prosperity gospel um, where they've done this similar thing in a slightly different way, where their their gospel is using biblical language and making it all about you're going to get good things in this life. Um, that's and, a that's a really helpful metaphor, I think, to say that that here's what it is: 
I'm going to identify a need or a want that you have, and then I'm going to cast the gospel as meeting that need or want. You know, right now, prosperity gospel, I want, I want money, I want wealth, I want, you know, ease from financial distress. Great, you can promise that to me. Well, here, you know, you want some racial reconciliation. You want some, a, a particular type of freedom. Let me just tell you the gospel story that meets those particular needs. And one of the issues, though, is that even in doing that, he was preaching a different gospel for blacks and for whites. So in the one place he says, judge by the color of your skin, not the content of your character, which is a good line. In other places, when he's talking about we will be free one day, he's saying that the whites, and you read some of his language, and it's very, very vitriolic language, you know, like what he's talking about Mississippi and he's talking about Alabama and what he writes around these things. It's very, very antagonistic language. And he's not going, we'll all be free. He's going, we need to... We need to put you into a different place. And so he wraps it frequently in this language, like we'll all have the symphony of brotherhood. But in a lot of others of his writings, it's not a symphony of brotherhood. It's that blacks will be made free, which is why it's called black liberation theology. It's not about freeing the poor white that is suffering. You know, Like the prosperity gospel has a more universal application than his gospel did. His gospel was very much... Jesus Christ came to save the blacks. And, you know, you could argue that, well, that's because he was speaking to the people who were the most subjective at the time, and so that's who was tailoring, tailoring it to, and he was responding to people with a lot of vitriol, and, you know, so by comparison, was he more vitriolic? Probably not. Then you know, a lot of the, you know, people... And know, certainly white, there were people like Malcolm X that took it a much, much, much further step than Martin Luther King Jr. did in terms of vitriol and stuff and, and violence. So there's no question about that. But the gospel, but my point more is that the gospel he was preaching, it wasn't like a prosperity gospel for everybody. It was black liberation theology. Can we differentiate between prosperity gospel and saying that the gospel is here and the gospel is, is on earth and a optimistic eschatology? Because we talk about an optimistic eschatology a lot. You know what I mean? There is a part of it where we do look at the kingdom of God coming in the in the world and the kingdom of God being worked out in the world. I mean, that's one of the central themes that we talk about here. But we would not say that those two are the same thing. And it's, but it's, you know, that's a thing where it is a danger you can have. And I don't have it a is. name of someone, but I, you know, I, I I'm sure that there's people who take it too far. Where they I can, make it so I that can, their postmillennialism basically means that the gospel is for this life. Um, and so, you know. You're, they've done the same thing. It's a different thing to say that the that the object of the gospel is racial reconciliation, as opposed to racial reconciliation Will be is an effect of a fruit of the gospel. I mean, it is important to recognize that that Martin Luther King comes along, and he's a very good speaker, right? Because that's kind of I mean, I'll just be blunt. He's like what's talked about in Second Timothy, where there you'll want teachers that itch your ears. And he was a very good speaker. He was very good at 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 bringing people with him, at getting people to listen to him. They liked him, but just because he became the face of the movement doesn't mean that the movement wasn't very good and started by other people, and that other people were doing it. And I do think that there's a real sense that he came along at the right time to get in front of something that now a lot of people want to say he was the one who started it. But Rosa Parks and other people, it had happened way before that. He just came along at the right time, was a good face, was a skilled orator, 
and he get and I'm not saying he didn't have any influence on the movement. I don't mean to say that at all, but I do mean to say that that when we exalt him, it even you know even in the civil rights movement, I'm not sure he's the figure that had the most import. And you know, you look at his, uh, you know, this this black liberation theology, and uh, where you know we're saying that he's con- he's rejected the traditional orthodox gospel for this new gospel. Um, and I and the, the thing is, when you look at it, when you look at his actual theological statements, rather than just his sermons, but he's saying, "Here's my theological beliefs." They back that up that they're not not orthodox. I mean, it's important to recognize he just rejects the Nicene Creed, and he he did that explicitly in his writings. He didn't believe in the Bible by faith, and so everything goes back to science. So, like what he wrote in, when he uh, was getting his seminary degree. What he wrote is, the second doctrine of our discussion posits the virgin birth. This doctrine gives the modern scientific mind much more trouble than the first, for it seems downright improbable and even impossible for anyone to be born without a human father. First, we must admit that the evidence for the tenability of this doctrine is too shallow to convince any objective thinker. To begin with, the earliest written documents in the New Testament make no mention of the virgin birth. And so he's saying, well, science says it's impossible, so therefore it's impossible. Now, the first position is he can't be the son of God. That's the first point. This is the second point. Um, And so, but he says that one's more scientific than the virgin birth, which I don't even understand his logic or his reasoning there. But but the, the seminary that he went to was very, very liberal theology, right? I mean, it rejected the doctrine of the Bible. And so it basically looks and says, science says that, a woman can't get pregnant without a man, therefore the virgin birth didn't happen. So you can see right there that he's not, his Christianity, quote-unquote, is not based on faith. It's based on what's reasonable. Specifically, you know, what what could my experience tolerate? I right. think an important note on this is that, you know, when these quotes that were, that we just read and that we're going to be reading are from when he was in seminary. So that was quite a while before he is the civil rights icon. Um, Because that was when, you know, he was writing papers. He was saying, here's what I think about theology. Could he have changed his theology um, by the, by the time that he, you know, by the time of his death? Well, he had plenty of time to do so. But if you look at his writings and I haven't read all his writings, but you know, I, you, you read his sermons, like I said before, read a sermon um, he, he, let me back this up. I mean, he had plenty of time before his death to change his theology, but he never came out and said, I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in all the rest of the things we're going to talk about. Um, so, you know, when, when he confessed to heresy, you know, you would expect if someone was an Orthodox preacher that they would reverse that. And if you read his sermons, you know, like we talked about the liberation theology, that's what they are. They, they don't go back to the true gospel. He's, he's not, you know, this is not, you know, some, something that he had written and then, you know, changed his opinion on. There's no evidence that I'm aware of that says that. And we'll quote something from his autobiography, which would say that, you know, because that was written later, which would also argue the same thing. And also the church that he pastored. The church that he pastored con- continues to this day to be a black liberation theology church. It never changed. So you would think if his doctrine changed, that the church that he preached at, that you'd see some change in its doctrine. Yeah, I mean, he, he rejected so many basic doctrines. But, you know, another paper that he wrote around that time. Um, other doctrines, such as the supernatural plan of salvation, 
the Trinity, the substitutionary theory of the atonement, and the second coming of Christ are all quite prominent in fundamentalist thinking. Such are the views of the fundamentalist, and they reveal that he is opposed to the theological adaption and social and cultural change. He sees a progressive scientific age as a retrogressive spiritual age. Amid change all around, he was, is, willing to preserve certain ancient ideas, even though they are contrary to science. So he's saying the substitutionary atonement, that's, that's something, and he's writing a paper about, about why funda- fundamentalism is bad, right? There's a book called The Fundamentals that was distributed widely worldwide, and people read it, and it was basically a call to go back to the scriptures. It's, it's actually not very good. There was a lot of mishandling of scripture in it, but, but he's looking at that and saying these fundamentalists, they think that you should actually read scripture and not change it according to current societal needs. That the Bible should change based on the culture. I mean, basically, he's he, when he uses the word fundamentalist here, he's talking about a really specific set of beliefs that, more or less, these are the basic things that if we would now say, if you don't believe those kinds of things, you're not a Christian. And the fundamentalists, because if you read the fundamentals, and I have, they go beyond that. But what the fundamentals were, the whole idea of it was, is you need to get back to basing everything on the Word of God. They just didn't handle the Word of God very well. Right. And so what he's saying, what he's rejecting is the idea that you need to go back to the Bible. What he's saying is, no, theology has adapted, and we need to continue to adapt theology and, to contor- and current societal and cultural And he's going farther than that because he's not just saying, well, you don't have to go back to the Bible, but he's saying not, you don't have to go back to the Bible, and here are specific things that you don't have to go back to the Bible on, specific right. doctrines that you can reject because, hey, we're progressive. It's a scientific age. We've moved beyond that. Why are we still relying on these ancient ideas? And just think about it. I mean, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. I mean, these are not like the Trinity. <laughs> these are not like like minor doctrines. These are the most basic doctrines of Christianity. Like I said, he's very explicit that he rejected the Nicene Creed. Yeah, I mean, you. These are the you know you you look up your local ch- church and you see their statement of faith and like, well, that's pretty weak. It's not nothing like the Westminster, nothing like the SOBC. It's just like five things that yeah, all Christians agree with that. Well, basically going through here, we're seeing that he rejects every one of those things. That, you know, the basic things that we'd say, well, that's like, you know, is that even good enough to, to say that they have a good statement of faith? He even rejects those. When he says that a supernatural plan of salvation, that he's rejecting that. I mean, this is the statement that the freedom is only about this earth. That Jesus Christ, it's only about now because there is no supernatural plan of salvation. There's nothing beyond nature. Which is why he then reverts back and goes, you know, everything has to be scientific. I mean, so so you have to say at this point, does does your Bible talk about this kind of person? Does the Bible describe what this kind of person is? And this is the kind of person who comes in and says, Hey, I'm preaching you a gospel. It's and he and we're not making this up. He's saying this gospel, it's not a supernatural plan of salvation. It's a plan about freedom on earth. That's the gospel plan. And so Paul says, hey, if anybody comes to you preaching another gospel, how are you supposed to think about them? Let them be a Christian. Let's make a holiday for them. <laughs> is, that, is that how we're right. supposed to react to that kind of a person who says, who explicitly says, I'm preaching you a gospel, but it's not the gospel of the Bible. I have a different gospel for you. This is a very short list. It could be much, 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 much longer. I just tried to pick some of the most basic things that were clearly contrary to the Word of God. And then, you know, next item that we have, you know, on that list is from an article called The Humanity and Divinity of Jesus. And this is part of what he said in that article. 
We may find the divinity of Christ not in his substantial unity with God, but in his filial consciousness and in his unique dependence upon God. It was his felling of absolute dependence on God, as Schleiermacher would say, that made him divine. Yes, it was the warmness of his devotion to God and the intimacy of his trust in God that accounts for his being the supreme revelation of God. All of this reveals to us that one man has at last realized his true divine calling, that of becoming a true son of man by becoming a true son of God. It is the achievement of a man who has, as nearly as we can tell, completely opened his life to the influence of the divine spirit. So what he's saying there is Jesus Christ became God. And what he's saying is every man can become God. I mean, this is this is... <laughs> this is so contrary to Christianity. Christianity is we need somebody that's perfect, that is connected to God to restore us in relationship to God. And his view is if you just seek God well enough, you'll become God. It is the achievement of a man who has, as nearly as we can tell, completely opened his life to the influence of the divine spirit. It's achievement of man. Right, you right. Know, it is about man is, becoming God. One this man has not the grace of God. Realized his true divine calling. But it, it, but the point there is, one man's done it, but all of us should be doing it. Is kind right. of the way it reads because it's the achievement of a man. And so, his he's not like close to scripture. He's he's like completely rejected all the basic doctrines of scripture. He has rejected Jesus Christ as Lord. Is rejected him as God. So uh, another quote, which is from the one of the articles that we had read earlier, an excerpt from that article. The root of our inquiry is found in the fact that the early Christians had lived with Jesus. They had been captivated by the magnetic power of his personality. This basic experience led to the faith that he could never die. And so in the pre-scientific thought pattern of the first century, this inner faith took outward form. But it must be remembered that before the doctrine was formulated or the event recorded, the early Christians had had a lasting experience with the Christ. They had come to see that the essential note in the fourth gospel is the ultimate force in Christianity, the living, deathless person of Christ. They expressed this in terms of the outward, but it was an inner experience that led to its expression. So you've negated the resurrection of Christ. You've negated... The deathless person of Christ. I mean, that right that he right, that he didn't even die. It's basically saying the, he's an idea, right? And because he was an idea, that they imagined that he was real, and so then they wrote about him being resurrected because they were imagining that he was real. But it was all just in their fervency of their imagination. Right, that happens to me a lot. <laughs> wow, you've got a better imagination than I do. And then they went and lived and died for that imagination. Right. And this is this was their lasting experience with Christ. And then not only that, but everybody afterwards is supposed to connect to this imaginary resurrection. Which is, I mean, you understand there's a part of it that basically what he is promoting is going that emotionalism, because it was effectively emotionalism, should be what drives you. You should you know, I mean, there's this part of it where if, if Christianity was emotionalism then and what it gained was what it, what can be gained by it, then it is also a means to gain these things today. And so it's it's pushing people away from thought 
and towards emotionalism in a sense. And he, he's just revealing that he's very much a man of his time because what happened is you had the, the higher criticism that was basically saying, oh, no, nothing in the Bible is true. None of it's historically accurate. None of it happened. There is no historical Jesus. And a lot of the liberal church response to that was, oh, okay, you're right, but, but we would imagine Jesus to be like this or, you know, as a myth. It's, it's true as a myth. Sort of. So it didn't really happen. But it's there are what stories Peterson that says we can now. live by. It's exactly what Jordan Peterson says now. Is the Bible's not true. It's truth. It's more true than truth. It's more true than true. I mean, it's the same exact thing, is that we don't need to consider the words to be true because the ideas that are expressed, they're real truth, even though the truth is coming from lie. So rather than God being the creator of Satan, which he was, who becomes the father of lies, they make lies become the father of God, the truth. And this is the same kind of twisted thinking that, that Martin Luther King had. The Bible is very clear. Unless he repented of this, and like Joshua said, there is no evidence that he did, and the evidence is strongly the other way. It is clear he was not saved. And his behavior, even the night before his death, proves that he is not saved. But Romans 10, 8, 9 says, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Martin Luther King did not believe that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He isn't saved. It's crystal clear. Because you have to believe that in order to be saved. If you think the world controls God, you're not saved. Because God is less than the world. That's what Martin Luther King Jr. believed. And he was not a Christian. And we need to, you know, and the church wants to exalt him. They want to hold him up as a preacher. He was not a preacher of the gospel. He was a preacher of death. He wasn't a preacher of life. And, you know, people love to say, well... You know, what if, you know, the morning before he died, what if he realized, oh, wait, I've realized the truth. You know, I real, I actually do believe the Nicene Creed. I'm repenting of all my sins. And, you know, he would have done something else. <laughs> but, you know, but, you know the, the thing is, I mean, does God's power extend to save someone like that? Yes. Do we see people in the Bible where he's just saving people and then they instantly die, never even telling anyone they're saved? We don't see that. So we don't have any reason to think about that. And, you know, the person that are, is being memorialized, the person that's being remembered, is not the imaginary person that may have repented the minute before he died. It's the person that is recorded in history and who gave all the sermons. The person who was not saved. And even if you and, hold that that happened... Don't follow his teachings up to that point. Even if that's your view, don't follow him. But God says we're new creatures in Jesus Christ, created for good works. And even the thief on the cross had the good work of preaching the gospel. There is no evidence at all that Martin Luther King had any good works. None. And so even if it was a minute before, we exalted when we make the gospel about saving man. God makes the gospel about producing the fruits of righteousness. And, and your position that he didn't have any good works is true of everyone who is not saved. Yes. That's just, I mean, yes, I mean, yes, just yes absolutely. This isn't like but specific point, to Martin Luther but King But my Jr. point is, if, even if that morning, if he repented and believed, there'd right. be some evidence of right. it because God saves us to good works. And you also have to say, no, he didn't do that. Well, that is what he does. And that's the evidence of Scripture is that's what he does. Now, God can do whatever he wants, but yet he binds himself with his word.
this is what Martin Luther King's life was about. First Corinthians fifteen thirty two. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. All he thought was, this is the world. His theology, his gospel was about this world. His behavior was about this world. There was no idea of supernatural, right? There's no idea of a supernatural plan of salvation. Martin Luther King Jr.'s view was, this is it. And that's how he lived. Yeah, that's how he lived. So the last uh, item, you know, we wanted to discuss with his theology comes from the posthumous autobiography. At the age of 15, I entered college, and more and more I could see a gap between what I had learned in Sunday school and what I was learning in college. This conflict continued until I studied a course in Bible in which I came to see that behind the legends and myths of the book were many profound truths which one could not escape. As stated above, my college training, especially in the first years, brought many doubts into my mind. It was at this period that the shackles of fundamentalism were removed from my body. This is why, when I came to Crozer, I could accept the liberal interpretation with relative ease. So he was convinced the Bible was a myth, and so then he goes to seminary. That's why he could write these papers. And he never really denounced the idea that the Bible was a myth. And so how do you fix your theology when you take the Bible to be a myth? And and even more so, I mean, even though, I mean, the, the I Have a Dream speech was later in his life. And the things he's promoting in there are very consistent with this view of the gospel. I mean, when he's saying the valley shall be, I mean, those things that shall be done, that wasn't, that wasn't talking about that slavery would be done away with. That no. was, I mean, I mean, those. Th- th- so, but I mean, but if you view this as the way he views it, if this life is all there is, then that that is what it's about. And so there is this part of it where I mean that. So we we do have evidence that he didn't turn away from this view. There is every evidence that by the things that he promoted, they are consistent with the things he teaches here. And I mean, I think that's that's perfectly because people love to make just conjectures in their mind and just and imagine things, and that's. That's not that's not the way you think about things. In the end, you look at what he said, and you look at what he did, and you say, this fits, this matches, this is consistent. We, we've talked about this with people like Robbie Zacharias, that if you cannot control your sexual, sexual urges so that you're a fornicator and you're an adulterer, the Bible says you, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, there's a lot of evidence that, that Martin Luther King's personal life was—, was was a testimony of his unbelief that he believed in eat, drink, and be merry, for you shall surely die. A lot of the information about the recordings, or a lot of the information about his life comes from recordings that the FBI did. And those haven't been released. They've been sealed until 2027. But, but we do know records that haven't been sealed that, like, you know, John Kennedy listened to these recordings and those notes we know of. And so we know a lot of people that heard the notes. So even though we don't have the original recordings because they've been sealed, there's plenty of evidence. Even a good friend of his the night before said that he committed adultery multiple times with different women the night before he was, he was shot. And so this is not a man who, I mean, his, his practice matched his theology. If you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ, the answer is eat, drink, and be merry. And that's what he was doing. There's no reason not to commit adultery. 
Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a couple isolated incidents. I mean, it was like he had mistresses in cities all over the country. You know, it's like dozens of different, you know, women over his career that he was doing this with while he was married. Um, and, you know, and, and, you know, it's pretty, it was pretty well documented because the FBI was really coming after him, you know, even to the point where um, they, you know, they had, they were, you know, tapping his hotel rooms and things like that. And so they had tapes of him and they send him to his house with, a, you know, an infamous letter, you know, anonymously encouraging him to say you need to kill yourself because we have this information on you. So we're it was enough. It all unless you kill yourself. Right. It was enough for them to you know, try to convince him to kill himself. And, you know, he didn't, but he was not happy that he was getting this letter. Um, and so, you know, it's not, it's not really in contention whether this happened or not. I mean, you know, the people who study know it happened. You know, there's some debate about, you know, exactly how much, but for a Christian, for a pastor, you know, it's far past any standard of, you know, even the most... Even if you say, well, can a Christian commit adultery once or, you know, it's not, that's not what we're talking about. And we're talking about that, again, that this was reported through the government because they were very worried about him. And so it's not like there isn't lots of cross-checking and stuff. And, and people like JFK, I mean, the, the Hoover saying that this guy is just unbelievable, that they've never seen anybody like this, that would i mean it was like multiple women a night i mean this wasn't like occasional this was very frequent and so you know and jfk was no saint either and and yet you know he's kind of shocked by the behavior hoover was no you know hoover wasn't some prude that didn't know what was going on in the world and he wasn't shocked i mean he was shocked by martin luther king jr's behavior so to turn around and pretend like none of this means anything no i mean this is like this is the opposite of somebody who just had, you know, one, you know, where they stumbled and fell. This is not who Martin Luther King Jr. was. This was a, the pattern of his life. And, you know, if you want to be shocked by the FBI, by the FBI's behavior, well, there's plenty of room for that. Yes. That's not, but that's not, you know, that's not. And even issue. in here, the fact that they had recordings, that this was all illegal and they were breaking the law to do the recordings. So this isn't saying that they were just or righteous in what they were doing. They weren't. They were. They were scared people that, that didn't believe in God any more than Martin Luther King Jr. did. There, there was an article that came out a few years ago um, that was kind of, you know, renewing this discussion um, and, you know, bringing out some things that he had found in the FBI um, files that were publicly available, you know, even though, the, you know, the core ones aren't for a few more years. Um, and he was one of the prominent biographers of Martin Luther King and had written a lot about him. And he's saying we need to consider this because this is what happened, and it's pretty awful what he did in his personal life. Um, and but the the thing about it is, even though this is a respected you know biographer of King, um, who like who truly like likes him um, and likes what he did and is not like an enemy of him, um, but even he like he wrote this article and he had to get it published in a UK uh, magazine because the US outlets. We're just not willing to to publish it, um, and you know, and I don't know if it's a coincidence, but they it's been like removed from their website a few times. Um, you know, I don't know if there's we can make a conspiracy theory out of that, but definitely it's not something <laughs> we could. The question is, should we? <laughs> yeah, you know, but it's definitely something that people do not want to to touch and get involved with because it isn't touching the idol. 
which part of it is the reason to start with his theology, just to go, hey, his personal life completely matched his theology. It completely matched it. And so, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that his personal life was the way that it was because what you believe manifests itself in behavior, and that's what he believed. It was all about this life, so why shouldn't he go find pleasure? And when those files are unsealed in four years, I mean, none of us know what's in them, but do any of us have any expectation that coming away from whatever is revealed in them that we're going to think that he is a more moral and upright person I think there's enough evidence that we're going to think he's less even than we do now. You know, I go to Nigeria a lot, and you look at the sexual adultery that happens in the church in in Nigeria, and it's very prominent. It's because this is the fruit of what, what the prosperity gospel looks like. This is the fruit of saying that there isn't anything supernatural. This is the fruit of saying you can be holy without walking in righteousness. You see it all over the world. It's not just him. When you get your doctrine wrong... Your behavior follows. And his doctrine was not just a little off. His doctrine was horrible. And so why should we be surprised at any of the behavior? It's not like it's anything against what Scripture says. Scripture basically, when you're dealing with New Testament controversies, it basically says you've got the true gospel, and then you have everything that's competing with it that's earthly, fleshly, demonic. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's what he offered. He offered something that was competing with the true gospel. He was explicit about it, that it was earthly, that it was fleshly. And, you know, we have to connect the dots that Scripture says to, well, okay, it's demonic too. So, you know, if we want to loop back to the question of, you know, how should you remember people like that in, in history, you know, in, uh, in the public, public memory, you know, holidays, statues, things like that, um, you know, I think— one thing, and we've said it already, but the, and, and you were just saying it, which the fact that he's a pastor and claiming to be a preacher puts him in a different category. And, you know, in a lot of ways our country is, is secular and religiously neutral, but doesn't mean that we need to be. It doesn't mean that we need to advocate for that. Um, we can say, you know, we, he needs to be judged to a higher standard, and he's fallen short. And, you know, I was talking to—this was probably a year ago or something. I was talking to a black pastor— and he was going, you know, I hear all those things about Martin Luther King, but, you know, he was such a great man. It's like, no, we have to be, we have to be willing to look by, look beyond our personal desires, look beyond our personal history, look beyond our experience, the experience of the people we're talking to, and actually look at truth and trust that it is truth that sets you free. You know, Martin Luther King saying all these things about how we can do this stuff and that this will— the real real freedom is from from Christ because he is the truth, but it's also real freedom is seeing things as they are, not as you want them to be. And it's really easy in cases like this to do what the rest of America is doing and going, we want him to be this good man that we're doing these good things instead of going, no, truth is what's good. And part of it is, is when people say he was a great man, sometimes they mean what the word literally is. Great means big. And what they and there's a part where this is where idolatry is, is because they feel like if they take him down, there's nothing to replace him. And this is what Martin Luther King Jr. believed. Is he right. believed that there is no Jesus Christ. He believed there is no reality. There is no reality of Jesus Christ. And if you're not willing to take him down, if you're what you're saying is, but he's such a great man, and if I if 
if I if he's not there, then what is there? Then you're in the same place he was. You're in exactly the same place he is. You don't believe that Jesus Christ is real. And if Jesus Christ isn't real, you're in the exact place he is. You should just, what Paul says is, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. And so, I mean, there is this part where this is why idolatry exists, is because people don't believe in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is greater than the world. And until, until you actually believe that, you're going to keep looking for idols. And idols won't stop until that ends. And the sign of idolatry is that they point, the idols point to something other than God. And the reality is all of what Martin Luther King in his speeches and stuff, he would use religious language, but in the end, it was not about the glory of God. Right. It was always about the glory of man. It was always about the glory of the black race. It was always about, it was about things that, that he thought needed to be resolved in the world. And it was about his work. It was about the work of men. And, you know, the gospel is for the glory of God. And Martin Luther King's gospel had nothing to do with the glory of God. And there is lots of people that are in churches today that their gospel has nothing to do with the glory of God. So he's not alone in this. But we should be take a warning that just because you're successful, just because you make a positive impact on the world, just because you, you have influence, just because of all these things, if you're not doing it for the glory of God, you shouldn't think you're saved. Those who are the children of God do it for the glory of their father. Those who are, have Christ as their husband, they do it for the glory of their Lord. He was doing it for his glory or the glory of his people or the glory of America. It doesn't really matter because at different times he was doing it for different glories, but what he never did things for was for the glory of God. But God still used it for his glory. I mean, you have the verse in uh, Genesis that they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so we can we can remember and, and have faith that, you know, even when wicked people are doing things for which their motives are wicked, are not righteous, are not to bring glory to God, yet God can still use it to bring himself glory. He can still use it, you know, to help people. He can use it for, for all his purposes. And, uh, you know, and, and that, that helps us also, in a way, disconnect the effects of what he did with him, him personally because, you know, if it's God that's orchestrating it, you know, if it's God's work and we look according to Scripture and say it's a positive, you know, positive by the standard of scripture you know there's a certain aspect of what he did we can right. we can disconnect that from you know the the uh, a wicked person who did that thing and if you would write all of that into a box and put it as the preface to a history book it sure makes history a lot easier to cope with if you just say what's god doing if we start with the question of what's god doing in history it's a lot easier to see how somebody that is manifestly wicked could actually be used by God to push things where God wants them to be pushed because they're not going any other ways than the way God wants them to go. We appreciate you listening. We recognize that that it's a dangerous thing to do a, a podcast on Martin Luther King Jr. because he is one of the leading, if not the leading, idol in America. And it's always dangerous to touch idols. But Christ came to knock down the idols of this age. He came so that we would see him for who he is. We would see the glory of God instead of the exaltation of man. So the reason that we do an episode like this is is to point people back to say, who is God? What is God doing? 
and recognize that God can use some really vile men to do things that are still a good thing to have done. And so that we can cry out to God and say, God is merciful, rather than saying, look at how great Martin Luther King Jr. was. We're supposed to be looking through the things that happen in this world to see the glory of God. May you listen to this episode and see how God was glorious and how he used Martin Luther King Jr. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.